Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. This podcast comes to you from the 2022 Lives Trauma Forum in Athens. Traumatic brain injury is one of the most important causes of loss of quality adjusted life years in young people. While there are many challenges, one of the most difficult is ventilation management of patients with severe TBI. Chiara Roba is a consultant in neuro and general intensive care at Policlinico San Martino in Geneva in Italy. She has a PhD in neuroscience and is the current chair of the NeuroICU section of the ESICM. Chiara joins me today to discuss her thoughts on this important issue. Chiara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Chiara, what are the impacts of traumatic brain injury on the lung? Well, the impact of uh, traumatic brain injury of the lung is uh, is very high uh, because uh, every time there is a brain damage, uh, there is uh, an activation of uh, an inflammatory cascade which starts from the brain and then it affects systemically all the peripheral organs. And the lung is one of the most affected ones. What are the mechanisms that are involved in the pathology affecting the lung? So, again, there are basically, I think, two main uh, issues. The first one is uh, this cascade uh, of uh, inflammation, which activates the coagulative cascade as well. And this is what we call the first hit. So the lung becomes more vulnerable to second damage. And then the second damage is what we do ourselves, because every time we treat the brain at some, in some way, uh, we, we give a damage to the lung. Just think about when we use the barbiturates or when we use hypothermia. Uh, these are all factors which can uh, cause uh, uh, an increase of the pulmonary complications. And there is also the other way around, because if we are not gentle in ventilating the lung, this creates an inflammatory activation, which then further affects the brain. So it's a difficult cross-talk. Chiara, how does the development of pulmonary complications affect the outcome for patients with traumatic brain injury? Uh, obviously, after um, what I discuss and what I have explained, you won't be surprised to know that uh, the pulmonary complications in brain injured patients are much more uh, uh, common than uh, in other populations. And uh, nearly half of them have uh, a ventilator-associated pneumonia, uh, we just uh, published a meta-analysis which demonstrated the 20% pooled incidence of ARDS. And the ARDS is a very severe complication and is independently associated with mortality and uh, increased poor neurological outcome. VAPI is not associated per se with mortality, but is associated with increased length of stay, increased days of uh, mechanical ventilations. And then there are a number of other complications like neurogenic pulmonary edema, cardiological involvement as well, because between the brain and the lung, there is always the heart. <laughs> so. Yeah, you mentioned that the ventilation strategy or, or the lungs can affect the brain. How does uh, ventilation strategy influence recovery from traumatic brain injury? So if you look at data of non-traumatic of non-brain injured patients who have ARDS or who are ventilated in a non-protective way, these will develop more neurological complications. Uh, the reason is that if uh, you are not protective uh, with the lungs, so if you use high tidal volumes, high driving pressure, if you have uh, 
high plateau pressures. This causes a barotrauma, a vili, which further exacerbate the release of this inflammatory cascade, which goes on the other way around. And this has an effect even in healthy brains because there are a lot of neurocognitive and neurological dysfunctions after ARDS. Now, if you give this damage to a brain which has already a trauma or a cerebrovascular disease, you can imagine how bad this can be. And in fact, the mortality and the neurological outcome after the development of this complication is importantly, importantly increased. Now, presumably the ventilation that we provide itself also can affect traumatic brain injury. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's our ventilation which can affect uh, traumatic brain injury itself. And the problem is that uh, um, all the big trials which have uh, demonstrated that uh, we have to be gentle so that we have to use uh, lung protective strategies, they have excluded brain injured patients. If you look at the exclusion criteria, there is always a neurological issue, increased intracranial pressure. So we don't, we don't have evidence. The reason why these patients have been excluded from this trial is that uh, it's true that uh, lung uh, protective strategies uh, improve mortality in generalized population, but potentially can further have a damage or can be challenging in brain injury. Low tidal volume can lead to high CO2, permissive hypercapnia, which no, we know is allowed in the generalized CO population. In brain-injured patients, permissive hypercapnia can cause cerebral vasodilation and increased ICP. Every time you increase the intrathoracic pressure, have, this can be a problem because this can be transmitted to the brain and can increase the intracranial pressure. So it's difficult. You mentioned that there is a deficit in the uh, the literature. How much evidence do we have about how to manage the ventilation component of uh, a traumatic brain injury patient? We don't have any randomized control trial, uh, and we have small observational studies. Uh, we have some physiological studies, and then we have what we extrapolate from the general ICU guidelines. That's it, and we have to. Uh, to reason and to think uh, starting from that. But the physiological studies and the most small studies that we are uh, doing and that we are reading now are telling us that uh, the lung of a brain injured patient is not different from the others. So the lung protective strategies uh, should be used even in this population. So traditionally, they were ventilated with tidal volumes of uh, 12 millimeters per predicted body weight. They were ventilated with zip so with zero PIP, uh, and this is wrong. We are understanding that uh, if we ventilate them like this, we increase the incidence of pulmonary complications and then the outcome. With that in mind, uh, I understand that you're involved in making some recommendations and publishing those. Um, can we go through what your approach to ventilating a patient would be? Um, for example, starting with what tidal volumes and respiratory rates the PEEP and the driving pressure that you would choose? Yeah, so, um, yes, we have uh, produced these uh, recommendations with the European uh, Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Uh, the first step was doing a systematic review and then a grading. And if you look at the different demands, uh, every time that we give a recommendation, it is not supported by evidence. So 
it is really it was really a discussion uh, based on uh, the experience of the of the expert. So um, le, regarding the, the tidal volume, um, the tidal volume in these patients uh, needs to make sure that the patient does not increase too much the CO two, but at the same time that the plateau pressure is uh, is anyway protective. So. I generally, it depends if uh, the patient has a healthy or, or a damaged lung, but uh, generally a tidal volume of 6-8 millimeters per kilo predicted body weight is fine. And then we also always do uh, the assessment of respiratory mechanics, uh, calculating the plateau pressure. And then if we see that uh, we need more tidal volume, we titrate it according to the plateau pressure. On the basis of this, we, we also set the PEEP and the driving pressure. Let me say something about the PEEP. Um, to my understanding, uh, from the physiological studies that uh, we did, uh, there is not much difference in the PEEP settings in uh, in this population compared to the to the generalized CO population because what we have seen is that the PEEP is enough to uh, give an appropriate recruitment and so it doesn't give altered compliance. But the, if you if you um, have recruitment, the compliance improves. Uh, and therefore you don't have hyperdistension. And so the CO2 does not increase. And if the PIP is set in a gentle way not to affect the hemodynamic status, so if you respect all these uh, factors, the ICP does not increase. So there is no transmission to, to the brain. But if you think about it, these are the principles that uh, you should use even in the generalized CO population. The only difference is that you have even more precise, in my opinion. And so if you are in doubt, maybe using a transophageal balloon, which can make your uh, PIP setting more precise and more fine, could be useful. Um, driving pressure, yes. What we have seen is that, um, uh, like in the generalized population, driving pressure can be independently associated with mortality in these populations with a threshold which is around 14. So we generally try to stay below this, uh, this, uh, this value, far below this value. So the respiratory rate is uh, another important point and it's important to, uh, to use the respiratory rate to manipulate the CO2. This is true, but uh, um, we have just published uh, a large uh, sub-analysis of the TTM2 trial where we found that uh, even the respiratory rate itself is independently associated with uh, mortality. I think that uh, the reason is that the respiratory rate is an important component of what is called the mechanical power, which is the true uh, work that the lung has to do at the end. So, um, Again, traditionally, these patients were ventilated mm, with a very, very high respiratory rate and they were just increased and increased and increased. Of course, use the respiratory rate, but keep in mind that at some point, this can start to be a damage. So also play a bit with the tidal volume and uh, the driving pressure. Kiara, one area where people are a little concerned um, in patients with uh, traumatic brain injury is in the use of recruitment manoeuvres and prone positioning. It, what evidence is there around that? What are your recommendations for the use of these strategies? 
So again, uh, evidence are just based on few physiological studies, which are contrastating because there are some studies that demonstrate that uh, recruitment maneuver uh, can uh, have a detrimental effect, mainly related to a reduction of arterial blood pressure and therefore of CPP. Some other studies suggest that uh, they can be useful because they can improve the systemic oxygenation. Uh, in the recommendations of the European Society of Intensive Care, this was not achieved in terms of uh, consensus. So we just say that we are unable to provide any recommendation or recruitment maneuvers. Uh, in my experience, uh, um, I rarely use recruitment maneuvers especially in these patients, because they can really affect the hemodynamic status. And uh, a, redu a reduction in the CPP, for sure, in a patient who has an unstable ICP caused a secondary damage. Instead, I have to say that there are more convincing results regarding the prone position. Uh, putting the patients in prone position can help in improving the oxygenation. If you uh, if you use some uh, tricks, uh, you because you have to be careful in these patients uh, who have uh, potentially increased ICP, uh, it does not affect ICP. Like if you put them slightly uh, at 30 degrees, even if they are in the prone position, if you are, for example, very careful about uh, the positioning of the pillows below the abdomen, because increased abdominal pressure increased the intracranial uh, pressure, if you are careful about this, the hemodynamic effect is less. The improvement of the oxygenation is uh, definitely important. And a brain injured patient, typically, if you see the CT of their lungs, they have a posterior actelectasis uh, because uh, they, 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 they don't move because they are in a coma, because uh, they stay for a long time supine. So um, if I had to choose, I would choose the prone position. Uh, regarding the other rescue therapies, uh, still there are not evidence, but for example, for ECMO or carbon dioxide removal, there are some case report, case series. Uh, so far, these strategies were considered, uh, let's say, forbidden in these patients because they increase the risk of bleeding, which is true. They do increase the risk of bleeding. But in some cases, the risk and the benefits are probably in favor of uh, trying to use them. Uh, carbon dioxide removal does not increase too much the risk of bleeding. And I think that in some situations where you have to increase too much the respiratory rate and still you can't manage the CO2, you can think about it. ECMO, if you see the literature, there are some cases where it is used successfully. Uh, only be careful about uh, the bolus of heparin. In some cases, the initial bolus was not given. In some cases, was given as half of the dose. It was discussed with uh, a multidisciplinary team. But it should not be completely considered a, a forbidden. That's the point. You mentioned a little earlier the use of esophageal balloons. What um, monitoring would you use to help you to titrate the ventilation strategy for these patients? Look, um, in the last uh, months, what we are very interested in is the, is the IntelliVent, uh, which is, uh, well, we, we generally use uh, um, full uh, respiratory monitoring uh, we have uh, the transesophageal balloon, and we are trying to use also the IntelliVent, which is a, a system that allows us to give us a target, for example, of CO2. 
uh, to me is very important because uh, uh, in patients who have problems with uh, increased ICP and they want to achieve a target of CO2 that uh, if you see the guidelines, they say as tier two, keep a CO2 between 32 and 35. Now, I don't know which is your experience, but in my experience, it's so difficult to achieve this target because if you do an arterial blood gases after 30 minutes uh, that uh, you have set your respiratory setting, then it's 28. And then uh, you change it again and it's 36. So this system is helping us uh, a bit, even for the oxygenation, because we are seeing that uh, the problem is not just the hypoxia, but is also the hyperoxia, which can be damaging. Yeah, you're involved in research in this area. Can you tell us about your research and also talk about where you would like to see um, uh, research efforts be put in this particular field? So um, we, with, with my team, we have done a lot of uh, physiological studies uh, to start. We have done uh, this uh, consensus. We have done uh, several surveys. And on the basis of this, we have designed uh, the Ventibrain study which is the largest uh, multicenter observational study uh, in uh, acute brain injured patients, specifically focused on uh, mechanical ventilation. And the study is doing quite well because uh, we have more than 100 centers involved uh, and we have uh, uh, 2,200 patients uh, included so far. We will uh, continue the recruitment until the end of the year and then there will be the six months of follow-up. So I think that this will be a good start. Um, Venti, the database of VentiBrain is quite uh, huge. So we asked a big effort to the, uh, to the recruiters, but I think it's worth it because we will explore not only the ventilatory settings, but all the complications, um, the types of ventilation when ICP is a problem, when there is an ARDS, the use of rescue therapies, the use of tier three therapies for ICP management when there is a, a pulmonary issue. So I think we will have a lot of answers. And from this, I think the, the next step must be a randomized control trial because causation is not, correlation is not causation. We all know this. We all finished our papers on observational studies like this. And so we need to, to, do, to move uh, even more. Chiara Roba, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It is my pleasure, really. Thank you very much, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our app. You'll be able to access your logbook there too, and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your CPD diary. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.